Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This month, Choice Cricket Centre are recruiting a new cricket bat maker for the Choice Willow brand of bats based in Redburn, Hertfordshire. This is a unique opportunity for a passionate bat maker and cricket enthusiast to help promote, design and influence the future of their small cricket business into its third decade, whilst enjoying the ambience of their work environment within their indoor cricket centre. Short-term and temporary living space accommodation is available as part of the role. For more information, contact them at choicewillowrecruitment at gmail.com. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We'll be revelling in Scotland's two World Cup wins over Bangladesh and Papua New Guinea, reacting to the England Lions squad announcement, the latest rejig in the county structure, the IPL final and much more. We also have an interview with Scotland left arm spinner Mark Watt. I'm Yaz Rana and on today's show we've got Wisdom.com features editor Tara Hashim who appeared in today's Guardian newspaper, if you want to get a copy of that, the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. Let's start with Scotland. Four words you don't often hear at the start of a cricket podcast. Uh, they're two from two in the T20 World Cup, kicking the tournament into life with that fantastic win over Bangladesh on the opening day, coming back from 53 for six to put on a total of 140, then defending it. Chris Greaves, in just his second T20i, was the player of the match scoring 45 and taking two for 19 with his leg spin. Um, Joe, it was really what this first stage of the tournament needed, wasn't it? One of the two, one of the big two sides in the first round being in proper jeopardy early doors. It did. It was a brilliant start and it looked like it was going to be a bit of a damp squib of an opener at 50 for six, as you describe. And actually, at that point, I had, I had plans for a little bit of Sunday. So I went off thinking, oh, that's just not a great way to start this tournament. And it's a bit of a funny way to start a tournament anyway when you've got this kind of qualifier and then I saw with about six overs to go it was very much game on uh, and then Scotland wrapped it up beautifully I and mean, they've got a really well-balanced versatile attack got a couple of hitters in there who haven't actually really a couple of like Muncie hasn't really come off yet um, but is a is a proper player 
Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's as you say, it's exactly what the tournament needed. And we've got another absolute, uh, well, I mean, massive game coming up against Amman tomorrow, which, have I got it right? Looking at the net run rate, Scotland basically need to win. Assuming Bangladesh beat Papua New Guinea, Scotland need to win. Yeah, that that's right. So unless um, Bangladesh only just beat PNG and Scotland only just lose to Oman, Scotland need to win. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've talked about Bangladesh a little bit, about um, they've, they've secured some really big name bilateral wins. They, they beat New Zealand and Australia but on really low scoring wickets where basically no one could get more than 120, 130. And Shakib actually said that careers will end because of some of these pitches. Um, so I guess that wasn't great preparation. Um, in their win yesterday, uh, Bangladesh dropped Mamadullah and Mushrika down to number seven and eight, which is just really strange. If you don't back them to bat in the top six, why are they in the team? I guess Mamadullah has to be because he's, he's the captain. Mamadullah really rivals Quinton de Kock for the, the most reluctant captain I've ever seen. He does not look like he's enjoying himself yeah. at all. Not with there. Flower of Scotland's being blared. Oh, that was amazing. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah, if you listen, if you haven't seen that video, um, basically Scotland after every game, after every win, they, they sing Flower of Scotland in the dressing room. But I guess the dressing room is quite near the room when they had the press conference in, in the Oman Stadium um, and Mamadullah just was, was completely silent for 20 seconds as Scotland was seeing that next door, which is quite fun. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm biased because I'd lived up in Scotland for a few years. Um, but I think that Scottish cricket fans, this, this means so much to them for a couple of reasons. So got that interview with Watt and he describes this win as bigger than the England win, which everyone presumes is the biggest Scotland cricket win ever. Um, I think part of it is because we spent half the summer talking about how uh, England played too much cricket. Scotland have the complete opposite problem. They've only played 11 games in all formats from the start of the pandemic to the start of the World Cup. Um, and I think the other reason why followers of Scottish cricket are so invested in their success is because the proximity between the recreational game and the national side. Um, I was speaking to a couple of friends recently and what, while you have you know, Brad Wheel and Josh Davey, who've got count, full-time county gigs, a lot of them predominantly play club cricket and regional stuff. So I spoke to one of my friends yesterday who said, um, for me personally, it's just amazing and completely mental that as a bog-standard club player, I get to play with and against these guys week to week. Take Mundy, for example, who's played county cricket recently. He was down at our club preparing pitches and coaching every week when he was in the country. He doesn't have to do that. These guys are properly part of their clubs. Um, Mark, what is a current club captain which I think is pretty cool. So anyway, yeah, I spoke to what yesterday, so in between their, no, two days ago, in between their Bangladesh and PNG wins. Um, he's been one of their star performers of the World Cup so far. Spoke as well as their cricket, we briefly touched on his football because bizarrely, I think I mentioned this pod once, I've managed him in a game of football a few years that ago. It was him, was it? Excellent. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Of course. Um, Does he remember that? Uh, yeah, yeah, that was our first question. Fantastic. Um, actually, when I, when I asked him, um, let's have a chat, he said, are we going to talk about my role as a deep line forward? Um, so he remembered. Um, so yeah, here, here is that conversation. Great to have you with us, Mark. Um, let's get the elephant in the room out of the way first. Technically, once upon a time, you played in a football team I sort of presided over. Um, so I feel duty bound to ask you how your football's going. Um, sadly, I've not been able to play too much football. Um, before, the, uh, before we came over to Oman, I was a bit worried about some 50-50 tackles going <laughs> against my way. So... Um, I put it probably about three weeks before we left. I put it to one side. Uh, but no, the left foot's still there. Um, <laughs> still pinging in some nice cross balls and scoring some nice nice goals for the left peg. Um, but I'll get back into it once um, once the T20 World Cup's finished. Yeah, if you're wondering, listeners, Mark was a very effective deep line forward. Um, on to the proper stuff. Um, we're, we're talking 24 hours off that amazing win over Bangladesh. How, how are you feeling? 
Yeah, just really proud. Um, you know, you've seen social media over the past 24 hours go absolutely crazy. And, um, you know, it's just, I, I don't want to use the word unbelievable because, you know, we believe that we can we can beat any team on our day, which uh, we've shown in the past. So, yeah, it's just been a great start to the tournament. And, um, you know, we've had a really good uh, about six weeks together now. And uh, we're just keeping the ball going and keep, yeah, just keep the ball rolling, really. Keep winning games. You, you were one half of that partnership that got Scotland back into the game. Um, what, what were you and Chris saying out in the middle when you were six down with quite a few overs left? Um, do you make a conscious effort to be like, no, we're not just going to bat out the overs and leave something to bowl out. We want to put up a match-winning total. Yeah, I just I went out to bat with uh, Grievo and I just said, look, let's just give a couple of balls, see what the wicket's playing like, and then we'll go from there. We'll, we'll chat, in a, chat in a couple of overs and then go from there, really, and just try to play each ball on its merits. And, um, you know, Grievo just thought about batting uh, left-handed and hitting the ball at the park. Um, but no, it was just, yeah, just the wicket. You wanted to see what the wicket was doing, first and foremost, and then kind of, okay, we've got used to the wicket and now we need to get a score on the board. Uh, we couldn't just, you know, just pat around and get 90 or 100 runs. We had to, we had to try and get a competitive total and that's what we did. And um, our team bat right all the way down, right to 11. So we knew that people can come in and hit the first ball for six, like like we showed with Safian and uh, Josh Davies. So we're really, um, we just wanted to set up a platform for those boys to come in and do their thing. Hmm. Um, talk to me about Chris. His story is remarkable. I mean, as an outsider, he almost looks as if he's come from nowhere, effectively a complete newbie at international level, winning a Crunch World Cup game on day one. Um, yeah, well, what's, what's he been like, his, his, his rise, I guess, into the Scotland team? It's been, honestly, it's been absolutely amazing. I absolutely love Grievo to bits. He's worked so hard um, on and off the pitch, just getting himself into the squad, first and foremost, and to be on this trip. And, um, you know, Shane Berger trusts him, trusts him a lot and chucked him the ball and said, OK, in the practice match, go and show us what you can do for this team. Um, and he did exactly that. I mean, he was, I'm sure you've saw on social media, you know, he was driving Amazon vans around six months ago and now he's just got a match at World Cup. So it's a great story and I'm um, so pleased for him because he works so hard and he's a really, really um, top bloke. So, mm. yeah, really happy for Grievo. Obviously, it's been, it's been quite a difficult 18 months or so for, for a lot of the, the, the smaller nations in inverted commas in the international game. Um, I guess partly because it's a lack of cricket. How have you guys found the last 18 months or so? To be honest, personally, I've just found it extremely frustrating. And, you know, you see, you see the test playing nations playing all the time. And if, you know, one thing they might be doing is playing too much cricket and then you've got um, Scotland over here that are, you know, absolutely gagging for some games. Um, and, you know, we just need to keep showing what we're capable of when we get given the opportunity on the big stage. So um, any cricket's welcome. You know, we're absolutely, we were trusted bits to get um, Zimbabwe over to us for three home games, which was great prep for, for this tournament. Um, but aside to that, you know, we've not played T20 cricket in, in years, which is just frustrating. And even before that, in the past two years, we've played one and a half games um, of ODI cricket. So, um Yes, it's been frustrating and, you know, seeing all these T20 leagues going on around the world, you know, we've got guys that can be comp uh, competing in that and, and doing really well for teams and that. So, um, yeah, it's just been a frustrating past couple of, couple of years, really. And, um, yeah, we're just happy to be out here and, and playing well at the moment. Um, something that non-Scottish listeners perhaps don't know that much about is how close the link is between the national team and club cricket in Scotland. You've played county cricket, but, but not for a couple of years. Um, am I right in saying you still play quite a lot for Harriets? 
Yes, I'm captain of Heritage. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of the Scotland team, a good chunk of their cricket is, is Scottish club cricket. Do you want to just explain kind of how big Scottish club cricket is for the national team? Yeah, it's massive. Um, you know, it goes kind of um, club cricket and then you've got the regional level. And then uh, if you keep performing in both of them, then you'll hopefully get selected for the national level. Um, and yeah, you know, boys are really passionate about club cricket. I am massively passionate about club cricket. I think, you know, it's great to be a part of like, you know, it's like, it's like a family. And yeah, so if you're performing at club level in Scotland, you get the chance to play at regional level and then you consistently keep performing at regional level. You'll hopefully get added into, you know, the Scotland training setup, and then you see how you go against the international players. And then you kind of go from there. And Grievo is a great example of that. You know, he, um, you know, he's got runs at regional level. He's got a lot of wickets at regional level, and then he's came through, came through the system really, which kind of shows that it's working, which is really good for cricket Scotland when you're producing players like that. Mm, interesting that you just you described it as a, as a family. Um, it really is like a, a big, close knit family, isn't it? I only played there for a couple of years, but you get a sense that everyone's really invested in each other's success. If that's not too cheesy, probably more so than I've seen down south at least. So the, the WhatsApp groups were were, were popping yesterday evening. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I, I think I probably get the most abuse from anyone in, the, in my own um, team group chat. Um, but, you know, everyone's wanting everyone to do so well. And, you know, when you've got such a great club team, kind of gives you that support that, you know, people are backing you and want you to see, uh, want you to do well. And it's just really good to have all that support. And, um, you know, it's not, your, it's not your family. They're not your family, but, you know, they care for you and they want you to do well and seeing you on TV supporting um representing your country you know they, they get really proud and uh, yeah it's a great great thing to have Scotland don't play a huge amount of long form cricket at the moment I was wondering how that has affected your development as a T20 bowler it's quite lazy analysis but a lot of people don't get too excited by finger spinners in T20 cricket but you really caught your eye yesterday with the number of variations you had bowling from all over the place behind the umpire as wide as you could possibly go from the crease um, has, has being able to focus exclusively on white ball cricket helped you in a way? Yeah, I think it has. Um, I think it's also, you know, very tough as a finger spinner on the on the wickets that you get nowadays in national cricket. They don't they don't do a lot for uh, finger spinners, so it's just kind of just trying to keep the batter guessing, trying to keep them watching you all the time, and and just any sort of advantage advantage you can get as a cricketer. It might be a bit cheeky bowling from twenty five, twenty six yards, but you know if it gets me a dot ball in T twenty cricket, I'm going to try and keep doing it. Um, but yeah, it's just. You know, white ball cricket for a finger spinner or any sort of spinner really is, is tough. Any sort of bowler even is uh, really tough. You know, the game's only go one way and it's, it's bigger sixes. So, um, yeah, it's tough. But any advantage I can, I can get, I'll try them in the nets for a good year or two years and then slowly bring it into my game. And, you know, it's, it's worked quite well and something that I'm going to keep progressing, trying to get better at. And hopefully I can figure out some more variation for the World Cup. Have you practiced that behind the umpire delivery quite a lot? Oh yeah, everyone in the nets tries to hit it to the moon. Um, <laughs> so I was a bit scared bowling it in games, but you know it, it seems to work in games. You know, just because the batter is looking down at his toes and then looks up, and then the ball's kind of halfway through the halfway through the flight. So um, you know, it's worked in games. So why not keep going with it? And um, hopefully, it can only get better. Um, and just finally, can you can you give a sense of? what yesterday meant for Scottish cricket. You were involved in that England win uh, three years ago now, but this has got to be right up there with the best moments of the last 20 or so years. Yeah, I think it tops the England win. Obviously, it was a great, great day of the England game and, um, you know, it's their fierce rival of us. But, you know, 
World Cup, I mean, that means everything to us, you know, doing it on the big stage, you know, games that absolutely matter. Um, and there's so much to play for, if it's finances, if it's just exposure, you want to be doing that at the World Cup. So, um, you know, yesterday just meant absolutely everything for us. You don't understand how much preparation we put into into these games, you know. You've hardly played any in international fixtures. You've got two years thinking about this game against Bangladesh that you're going to be playing in the World Cup. So a lot of... Um, a lot of training sessions, a lot of, you know, bowling at the same batters all the time, just in training. Um, a lot of bowling at cones, trying to nail your Yorkers. Everything, all, all the one percenters just going to yesterday. So it meant a lot for us, as boys. Well, the whole work's paying off so far. Um, cheers for your time and best of luck with the rest of the tournament. Hopefully it's a long way. Thank you very much, mate. So I'll talk to me about Curtis Camper. I don't think I've seen Curtis Camper have a bad game <laughs> of cricket for Ireland. Uh, obviously, he turned up on the scene last summer against England. Uh, scored a couple of half centuries, kept on getting rid of Tom Banton. Um, and uh, yeah, four wickets and four balls. And the, the two names he's joined on that list, I think, in immense T20Is. I don't know if it's across international career, uh, Rashid Khan and Lassus Malinga. Now, Lassus Malinga, you can see how he might get four and four. He, you know, he'll just bowl four Yorkers and, and do that. Rashid Khan is, you know, can be unplayable. Curtis Camper is a fantastic cricketer, but <laughs> I don't think he ever saw himself taking four and four in a World Cup game in his in his World Cup debut, and it was just yeah, it came out of nowhere. I think it's, it was his second over. His first had gone for twelve, and the first first the first wicket was what initially called a leg side wide. Review shows a glove, and then he just you know he just went full, went in for the pads, got two and two. The the the, the hat trick ball, the the first hat trick ball. Don't know how that wasn't given on the field. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was absolutely plumb. Plum. Yeah. Um, and then the fourth one, I think it was Van der Merwe goes for like a big booming drive. And I almost think if he's on strike for like an actual hat-trick ball, like the first hat-trick ball, he's maybe you leaving leave that, that alone. Yeah. But yeah, he went for it inside edge and yeah, Camper goes. Where camper. do you stand on the double hat-trick debate? Do you call four wickets and four balls double hat-trick? No. No? It's not, is it? Well, I guess you could argue that the first hat-trick is the first three balls and the second hat-trick is balls two to four. Phil, you're, you're silent on this one. <laughs> Staying silent, okay. Um, moving on. <laughs> I mean, I, I could add, add some some grist to that pointless mill, but I, I just don't need to. I don't okay, need fair enough. Um, four and four. Let's just come <laughs> with that and move on. Um, Patrick Nunos, um, are you going to have to do another poll for the best T20 World Cup moment of all time after that Jatinda shot? Over extra cover against Shakib. Um that was a, a brilliant shot in the Bangladesh and Man game. But oh, it's such a shame he got out when he did. Yeah. As well. That game was looking really like another really good game there and it, mm. then it just kind of petered out. They've got some really good players in Man. Jatinder Singh's been really good. Um Bilal Khan's been good left arm seamer. But Fayaz Butt was hitting eighty seven, eighty eight miles per hour and he was in the same Pakistan on nineteen team as Babrazam that got to the twenty ten World Cup final. In that final, Butt took two new ball wickets. Uh, lots of like names you recognise. He got out Mitchell Marsh and Nick Madison, and then the man of the match was Josh Hazelwood, who took a four foot. Right. So lots of famous names there. Um, but yeah, Pat Patrick's uh, alluding to a poll that the ICC did uh, where they asked their f followers online to vote for their greatest ever T20 Cup moment. Uh, the final was between uh, Brathwaite's four sixes, remember the name, and um, Virat Kohli's 83 not out in a group stage game. Can I guess? <laughs> guess, guess which one was? Can I guess which one? <laughs> <laughs> was that against... Australia? Yeah, it was a very good It was good not. I've been watching that one live. Yeah. We're currently recording this during England's second warm-up game before the campaign gets underway. They lost their first one against India, reasonably tight contest. Uh, Rahul, Kishan and Pant were very good for India. Um, Tar, what's your moment of the week? It's from that game. 
it was um it was watching Moeen um hit thirty something off I don't know twenty something whatever it was um but it's it's the it's the one shot that he plays um which I've really grown to enjoy over the watching him in T Twenty cricket I've seen him do it a few times now I think most famously it was against South Africa so the ball will sort of be wide outside off full and he kind of smashes it but he slices across the ball so it goes behind square and can go for six or four. I think he did it in the IPL final as well last week, and then he did it again in this warm-up. Um, but the underlying point is that he's looking in very fine touch going into this tournament. And I don't think he's ever really had a great sort of like global tournament, really. I think he got 100 in the World Cup 2015 against Scotland. I mean, 2019, obviously, he was kind of dropped halfway through. And, you know, that was, you know, it, that wasn't a great tournament for him personally, I guess. Um, but he's he's looking fine touch and he's kind of, you know, he's the guy that he's got to be in that team now, uh, which, you know, a few months ago at the start of the year, you kind of thought how is Moan getting in the side, especially when Sam Curran was, you know, in at number seven. But yeah, he's looking, he's looking really good. Mm. Um, Owen Morgan didn't play the first game. Um, he was out for about 10 today. Uh, he wasn't p- particularly happy with the umpiring decision. With good reason, he middled it. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, Morgan said this week again that he would be willing to drop himself if his form in his mind was getting in the way of his side's chances of winning the World Cup. Um, do you think he should? No, not yet. Uh, and I don't think he will. Um, I think I think there'd have to be a real collapse. I think it would have to be a not just him not getting runs. I think it would have to be a kind of do or die moment. But then, paradoxically, the more pressure you move down the pipe of a tournament and if you do need to find that win and it is a, a real clutch moment, then naturally you're going to want your your skipper in there making the big calls. As we spoke about, I think maybe last week or a week or two ago, I think the captain's role in a T20 game is probably more pronounced and more central to the, the narrative than, than in any other form of the game. Um, he does need runs and he does acknowledge that. Um, I... I was I, I, I listened to the press conference that he gave yesterday to a handful of the of the journalists, and you know he was he was relatively upfront about that. He also made the legitimate point. He said, "Well, I wouldn't be sitting here now if I hadn't come through every other other run of bad form." And he does acknowledge that he is a, a flighty sort of feast or famine kind of player, so he does know that uh, he, he does need runs for sure. Uh, so do a few of them. Um, Jason Roy. Ejaz Ahmed won to one yeah, today. It really walked, was. I thought that as well. Walked, walked right across and, and got bold <laughs> neck and crop middle stump first ball. I don't think you saw it, Joe. No, I you were, that. no it's extraordinary. Um, and he needs runs generally, I think. Um, Butler's looking. Butler's looking reassuringly brilliant, though, isn't he? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, Butler's a great player. Um, obviously, Milan is is still ticking away, ticking along at a run of ball, um, which you know gets lots of people very hot under the collar. Um, uh, Liam Livingston. You know, he did okay against India. He, he did okay. He did okay. He, he got out cheaply in the in the second game against New Zealand, which we've just been watching. Um, and again, you know, by no means are we concerned about him. A few, a couple of bad weeks does not make you a bad player. But again, he would be feeling more comfortable, I think, in, in himself if he'd if he'd gone a little bit better. Uh, and I think the way that they were unable to contain India in that chase, and India knocked off 190 odd with an over to spare. I mean, that's that's quite an easy win, really, in the context of 20-over game. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how we're talking halfway through this game against New Zealand. So, yeah, there's there's work to be done, I think, across the board, really, with England. I just wanted to go back to the Morgan point. So, in this in this press conference, he, he 
it was all very humdrum to be expected until a question was asked about Mo about Moeen. Oh yeah, this was bizarre. And whether Moeen's good form, well, Moeen is in good form, isn't that great? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Is it uh, in partly coinciding with him having walked away from the test game? And as soon as the question, rather garbled question, came out, you saw Morgan's face light up because it gave him the opportunity to say, and I quote. Do you want to say that Test Match Cricket was holding him back? And that kind of glint in the eye, the Morgan glint in the eye came through. And he never misses a trick, does Owen Morgan, just to reinforce the point that these are two very, very different games and that one is thriving and flourishing and buoyant and the other one rather less so. And he said he knew he'd knew he been cheeky and he couldn't get the smile off his face. And then he, he kind of yeah, became more diplomatic and he said, well, you know, Mo's a very free-spirited cricketer which again is, is kind of shorthand for the test game. He'd, he'd outrun the test game. Um, but now, he's plays, now he plays back with me in my lovely little little subculture, then, then he's, he can be happy and express himself and be successful again. And crucially, having called it a day on test cricket, even, even when he wasn't part of it, it was still kind of hanging over him, wasn't it, that question? And now that is gone. And yeah. it doesn't feel like coincidence that he effectively played the knock that turned Chennai Super King's total from a decent one into a match-winning one. Um, on on that final as well, we, we had that we had that uh, debate a few weeks ago about whether you could get away with a specialist T Twenty captain, and obviously this is important with Morgan now in such poor form. Well, that final had specialist captain versus specialist captain yeah. effectively, <laughs> didn't it? And it felt watching that tournament, just experience is so important. And you watch Duplessis. I know he wasn't a captain, but playing such a big knock. And I think Morgan's presence on the field is still so important. We had a good. Um, we had a good question actually from Neil Varane, who put, I thought would put it very succinctly uh, with which would you be happier to lose from England's T20 side? One, Morgan's captaincy. Two, Milan's batting returns. Or three, a fifth frontline bowler. Um, which kind of sums it up really. And for me, it's for me it's three. I would lose the I would lose the fifth. Particularly against West Indies, which you expect is going to be a high scoring game. I would want that extra batter in there. Uh, so yeah, play them all and, and drop a seamer. Also, mm-hmm. just look back to 2016 with West Indies. Darren Sammy, you know, I don't think people remember Darren Sammy that much as a cricketer, but he was he was the captain that sort of, you know, he got that side in line, a very talented side in line to win that tournament, you know. So <laughs> the, yeah, the template's kind of and, there. And it's quite interesting, in, in that press conference as well, when he said, um, if if my form is getting the way of the of, of the side success and I'm aware I'm not getting any runs, he also said, as it goes, I'm captaining very well. That kind of made me think he's if he's captaining very well and he thinks he's captaining very well, I don't think he's going to drop out, especially when there are other players who are possibly yeah. out of Nick as well. And is it something you want to throw at Butler now? It's, it's, mm. I mean, Butler obviously is, it seems to be nailed on post-Morgan, but do you want to throw it to him in the middle of a world tournament where his batting is so absolutely pivotal to England's chances? It doesn't really make much sense to me yeah. and probably won't happen. Um, how, how are you guys feeling about England's chances? Has it changed much? Um, I think, was it, was it you, Joe, who said maybe last week that you fear for England against West Indies in the first game. Did you say that? I did, and I actually went as far as saying I thought England might not make it through the group. I've kind of, I've, I've, I think they probably will. I, I've changed my view on that, but I do think they'll struggle to get beyond the semis. I, I think they're kind of heading for a, a relatively comprehensive defeat yeah. to India in the semis. Would be yeah. My... I, I mean, yeah, they they do have power hitters, England. Of course, they do. Um, but it seems from what I've seen on these pitches in these conditions, you need them more than ever before. And just as you saw the paucity of Bangladesh's batting as a consequence, really, of them not having power hitters, six hitters, 
The other side of the scale, of course, is the West Indies philosophy that, you know, you can see off three or four dots, provided you, you launch the fourth or fifth ball out the ground. And um, you need muscular players more than ever to, to kind of beef it over the boundary because you're not getting much from the pitch. You're not getting much touch players. There's not much on offer for them, really. Um, uh, from from what I've seen, anyway. Yeah, I, you mentioned Roy earlier. I think Roy's going to be really, really important. I think on on the slower pitches, I think you've got to make the most of that power play as much as possible. Um, and I think Roy's going to be really important to that. Um, I'm still kind of sort of gutted that they've not gone for for an extra spinner. Um, I still think they've kind of. I agree. I think it's you crazy. Know, the way the way the way India picked that squad. I know they. Replaced now Axel with Shardle, so they got another seamer in there. But, but it's still four four spinners. Yeah. Even. So it's it's you know it's who's misread the situation. No, I, I think it's think wild. It's, really, it's wild. And, Especially yeah, you know when balls do get slower and lower as well, and you, you, they scuttle under the bat, yeah. and you have to create your own shots, your own pace on the ball. In these conditions, I just find it baffling. Really, and I, uh, you know, Livingston. People have gone on about you know him bowling off spin and leg spin, but he's still at the end of the day, he is still a part timer. I, I think. You just needed that third specialist in there somewhere. Um, he, bowled, he, he bowled quite nicely against India before he got injured. I, I'm personally, I'm okay with the, the makeup of the eleven if you've got Rashid and Moen and Livingston. For me, it, it's mad that you haven't got an additional seamer in there to change the side if you so wish on the morning of a match. If, if it looks like it's really going to turn, and then you want a second specialist spinner, it's hard to work out how you could have got a second specialist spinner into this team who you'd have dropped to allow that to yeah, happen. That's true. Mm, yeah. I, yeah, I do hope they get Mills in there. Um, yeah, he didn't play that first warm up, but just the way he bowled in the hundred, you know, all the T Twenty stats, Sky's raved about him for years. But he's when, when you actually watch him, you <laughs> you totally get it. He's bowling ninety miles an hour, and then he knows exactly when to bowl the slower balls. Mm. Yeah, I get the sense that England have gone all in on a couple of players who I'm not sure they probably should have gone all in on. Darren Milan being one, and the other one being Chris Jordan. Chris Jordan's played so much for England and his record recently is really quite bad for England. I remember about a year ago we were talking about how Jordan saves his best performances for England. Absolutely not the case in 2021. He's going at about 11 in the in the death and that's supposed to be his speciality. And um, Mills could easily fill that role. Apart from, crucially, he doesn't offer the same in the field as Jordan. Uh, he doesn't offer the same with the bat. And he hasn't got that experience, which Morgan Morgan always raves about Jordan. I can't see him being dropped for the big, game, big games, even though I, I do think there is mounting evidence to suggest he's not actually in England's best 11. Yeah, that's completely fair. Um, Alex Brinton asked, with so much data and coverage available of all the teams in the T20 World Cup, could there still be a tournament dark horse? And if so, who do you think this is? Um, I think that's a really good question, because I almost think that the data means you're almost more likely to have a dark horse because you're almost feel like the data tells you who should win and you almost prematurely write off teams. We'll Alex's point day. was that the teams who would historically be coming into a tournament like this as unknown quantities yeah. are now a lot more known. So that's, that's his true. point, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit what um, used to happen with mm. football when I first started watching world tournaments. There'd be all these players arrived you'd never heard of and you'd think, God, these are such incredible players doing different things. But then they all ended up coming to the Premier League or the league of which you watch <laughs> a bit of or they play in the Champions League and, and that kind of novelty is has kind of worn off. Yeah. Uh, and I think you are starting to see that a bit more with cricket just because there are so many T20 leagues around the world or, or T10 and these names just become known. But for a lot of us, unless you're, you're Ben Jones or Freddie Wilde, these are names. If we don't watch the Caribbean Premier League every week, then this is the first time you get to see them in the flesh playing proper international cricket against uh, top players. Mm. That's exciting in itself to see what these names can actually do. 
It, it does strike me that this, this tournament really is for these other teams. It's spiritually, it's for the for these other teams. But I think in, in the, the, the over, overriding sort of narrative or story of international cricket in the 21st century, it feels ever more that it's, a, it's about these teams. Come, come down the pipe, you know, if it is in England, India or West Indies, Pakistan final, whatever, then great, sure. And we'll go round the, round the process and it'll be fun. And it might even feel significant at the time. But if a, if a small team or a minnow team or an emerging team comes through and really does bother that, that, last, that last group section and even possibly push one or two of the really big teams out, which I don't think is implausible. From what you've seen, I don't think that's unrealistic. Um, then that becomes a huge moment for the game, I think. And, it, and you're feeling now like, despite how, you know your, your boy um, legitimate concerns about having not played any cricket for the last two years, at this level, playing this format, the gap is narrowing ever more. And how great would that be for the game if in this form of the game, specifically in this form of the game, you can bring one or two teams through so they can legitimately sit on that top table and not feel self-conscious and not feel awkward and not be clinging and cleaving to the odd isolated win, but can actually say, we've got a crack side here. We've got a side that can do that can bother teams on a regular basis. And I think but Scotland are a good example of this is not just a couple of teams doing well. This is now across the board. Scotland kind of scraped through the qualifier. I think they lost as many games as they won in their, in the in their first. In their group, first yeah. Lost to Singapore. So now you're thinking, this isn't like in the days where Ireland might produce a shock, but everyone else was way off. Yeah. Now there are a bunch of teams who are capable of testing some really good, the, t- the top sides. And that's, that's really exciting. Could I just ask, oh, back, going back to Scotland briefly, you having lived up there and been involved in the Scottish cricket culture a little bit, if they were to... Beat, yeah, obviously qualify and then beat another couple of big teams and not exactly get to the semi-finals, but to be in the scrap for that. What kind of impact might that have and how much will the media and the sporting populace be interested in that, do you think? It's hard to say because it, it's never happened. Scotland have never done well in a World Cup before. What, in football um, you mean? In, well, well that, that was my favourite <laughs> stat, that Scotland have won more. I saw, I saw, I saw you did a viral, didn't you? Yeah, yes. Scotland yeah. have won more... Um, <laughs> have won more Cricket World Cup matches in the last four days than the, their football teams have in the last 38 years. Um, but going back to your question, um, it's hard to say because Scotland have never done well in a Cricket World Cup before. Uh, there was a lot of press attention when they beat England, but that is so much to do with the Scotland-England rivalry, I think, rather than Scotland beating a big cricket nation. Cricket in Scotland is, is quite strange because in a way it is quite visible. There are, there are cricket pitches all over the place, um, but it is... It is it's kind of hidden and it's seen as very, very English. Um, so I think they would have to basically beat England again or push England for, I think, to really, really they do, get them. They go into England's group, right? If they yeah, qualify? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that that would be big and there'll be lots of attention to that. But this is it would genuinely be unprecedented. For, so I haven't actually have no idea what the precedent is, but normally very, they, very they little. Need, they need to carve their own identity, don't they? Distinct from England. And it, it needs to be to become a game where your average Scottish sports sports fan will recognise one or two of these players. Uh, and then it, it it's kind of diluted, the Englishness of it is diluted somewhat in, in the because way that you develop Kev- your own identity. In the way that Kevin O'Brien became the, the icon yeah. of, of that Irish win yeah. over England. Uh, we, we haven't probably quite got that yet with Scotland because it's still such early days. But. Yeah, but I guess it's the same problem as we talked about with 
how to grow English cricket, it's all, it's all Sky. So like, it's quite hard for a casual sports fan to turn on the television and see, oh, Scotland doing well. Um, so it's quite hard, even if Scotland, even if they qualify for the Super 12, and even if they get another scalpel too, I think that's still really difficult for that to like properly capture the Scottish public imagination. I think you'll see headlines, but I don't think you'll really see people, loads of people watching. It'll be great for the Scottish cricket community, um, and I hope I'm wrong, but I can't really see it suddenly making cricket an enormous game within Scotland. But yeah, that's a really good question from Alex. Um, Joe, what's your what's your moment of the week? Um, my moment of the week was um, going back to the the first ever uh, World T20 in 2007. I chatted to Darren Maddy and Chris Schofield, who are two quite uh, kind of surprise picks in England squad. As they was, I mean, at this point, we're only four years into the format played at, uh, at professional level. Um, obviously, the first World Tournament. England up until then, I think, had played five games and didn't really have a clue what they're doing or, to be honest, particularly care. So they would basically pick their ODI team and then just muck around with the order a bit like you might do on a, on a Sunday at your club side. But then, obviously, with the world, first World Tournament, they thought, oh, maybe we should take this a bit more seriously, think a bit more about it, and picked a bunch of players who'd done really well in the T20 Cup. So Maddie Schofield, uh, Jeremy Snape came in, um, and there was another T20 specialist. Oh, Luke Wright as well, who was only 22 at that point, kind of got parachuted in. And I, I just thought I wanted to f- cover the story because Maddie and Schofield both had interesting England careers that, that weren't really. Schofield picked at 21 as a leg spinner, um, didn't bowl on debut, took none for 70-odd in the second test, and then never seen again, ends up bowling for Suffolk a few years later after losing his Lancashire contract. Then gets a deal with Surrey, and then a year later he's playing in a world tournament um, when he thought he'd never play cricket again. And then you've got Darren Maddy, who played a bit of test cricket, a bit of ODI cricket in 2000, same year as uh, Schofield. Didn't do particularly well, got dropped, and then says he kind of lost his love for the cricket, had some mediocre seasons for Leicestershire. Uh, T20 came along, he thought, ah, I'm not going to play that, it's a young man's game. And then ends up being the, one of the first sort of proper T20 players, the first player to score a 1,000 runs in the format. And he said that absolutely rekindled his, his love for the game in general. And then he too, like Schofield, ends up playing in this this world tournament. Um, and they do okay as well. They do. Those two do well. England kind of, yeah, fluff their lines unsurprisingly. They beat Zimbabwe in the first game and then lose five games after that, most of them quite heavily. But yeah, Mad- Maddie has a quick fire, 50 against uh, New Zealand. Schofield takes a few wickets, doesn't go for too many runs. And then there's this kind of poignant moment which they both referred to as they England's ODI side went straight on to Sri Lanka for their uh, ODI tour. So Schofield and Maddie were the only two players going their separate ways. They were on a plane flying back to the UK on the day that the final took place. So that's they didn't even see that. They didn't see this kind of earth-shattering, game-changing final. Uh, and they're both just sitting there wondering, like, what, what comes next? Is it anything? They're both kind of hopeful that they'll get another chance because they did quite well. Uh, and then neither of them play for England ever again. Uh, Maddie gets injured the next year, doesn't play much T20, and then is basically quite old 35 36 by that point so it doesn't come about Schofield broke both his thumbs in two separate incidents the next summer so barely plays and then when he comes back other players have emerged um, and he doesn't get another chance they weren't neither of them were at all bitter about this it was more just a kind of an unfortunate finale to what was an incredible thing they never they never saw coming so um, yeah it, it's it really just struck me that whole tournament everyone was still finding their way no one took it particularly seriously India two years earlier had voted against the tournament even taking place because they didn't think they were worried about the effect T20 would have on the rest of the formats which is pretty ironic <laughs> given given the context now 
uh, and then left Sachin and Ganguly at home. And then from then on, it's it's Dhoni's India, basically. Yeah, wow. I mean, the early days of T20 cricket fascinates me. People having no idea what to do, basically, and getting random names in. Um, that, that's really interesting. Andrew Strauss batting at seven in the finishers' really? role in England's <laughs> first ever T20 international. That's amazing. Um, your, your piece is on wisdom.com. Uh, I'd highly, highly recommend it. It's a good read. Um, last week, feels like a long time ago, but England announced a 14-man squad for the England Lions tour that will run alongside the senior squads tour in Australia. Um, the Lions uh, will play two intra-squad matches with the England squad, uh, in Queensland, they will also take on Australia A in a four-day match. The party will return home on December 16th. I'll run through that squad quickly. Tom Abel, Josh Bohannon, James Bracey, Bryden Cast, Mason Crane, Matt Fisher, Ben Folks, Alex Lees, Saqib Mahmood, Liam Norwell, Matt Barnson, Dom Sibley, Jamie Smith, Rob Yates. Um, Taha, any interesting inclusions or omissions for you? <clears throat> Uh, I think the it was, it was more the omissions. I, think, I don't think there are any major surprises in there. Uh, Sam Cook was obviously the major one, uh, the major talking point, I guess. You'd, had, I mean, he just has an excellent first-class record. It's not even just this season that he's kind of broke out. He's been doing it for quite a few years now. He's been part of... He's got the best first-class record of the lot, including Overton, Robinson, and all the other Seamers. Yeah. Um, Tom Haynes obviously had a kind of breakout season, so I thought he might get in there. Um, but it's, it's, it's a pretty small squad. Um, I guess that's intentional and... I don't know. I, I, yeah, it wasn't. Uh, I mean, after after they denounced them, sort of main Ashes squad, uh, this was actually going to be the more exciting one. But even then, it's not. It's not super exciting. I mean, the, the hope was to see Livingston in there. He'd be kind of that bolter, that sort of bring that sort of excitement factor. He he basically would have become the talking point. Oh, can Livingston get runs there and get himself into the main Ashes squad? But he's not there, so it's kind of you know. I'm not surprised the reliable count your praise. I understand people's enthusiasm for him um but in this particular instance i don't really understand that issue um i mean he's not scored a, a red ball i know his overall average is okay but he says himself his red ball game has been um sacrificed in effect to become a, a top class white ball player he says it himself well he's, just he's hardly, hardly played any red ball cricket and they've left yeah. Tom and, it, and, and the game is too difficult it's too difficult we've seen it time and time again it's too red ball cricket is too bloody difficult to just sort of rock up and hope for the best. I, I understand that point. Um, and look, this is the running theme of English cricket and cricket in general, where you've got to pick your lane and you kind of have to go through it. But if if it is the case now that Liam Livingston is going to be part regular part of these white ball squads and during the summer, he's going to not be able to play much county championship cricket. Then if you do want to at least try and make that a possibility that he becomes a test cricketer, then it's got to be during the lines. It's got to be through that really. So, that's that's my thinking. Why, why you would have picked him? Obviously, yeah. I mean, his first class record. You're not picking him on that first class record right now because it's not been very good for a long time. But I don't know. I, there I was there was, a, there was an Ed Smith part of me that was kind of. <laughs> I can I completely to... understand what you're saying. So I, I think you've got logic, you, you've sure. got you've got to carve out a route that essentially isn't really there and take whatever opportunities you can. But equally, when you've got Tom Haynes, who scored more runs in the championship than any other player and doesn't make the plane. It, you can see it would look a bit absurd if Liam Livingston, who's barely played and hasn't got a run when he has, did make the plane. So, I yeah. can, the, so interesting bit for me was Alex Lee's, um, the, the probably the, the next opening batter that we'll all be talking about as the one who has to come in when these guys get discarded. But he's got pedigree in the sense that he's been talked about for a long time. He's not just arrived on the scene. Got loads of runs early doors at Yorkshire. 
hugely tipped by boycotts and the future England opener. And then it all just went wrong as it as it does, not quite to Hamid levels, but actually for a couple of years, not that far off. Uh, went to Durham and then you kind of wonder, is it one of those careers that's just going to slide away? And he's had a really good year, red ball and white ball. Um, and I think given how excited people were about him a few years ago and given that the form has come back, I think he should be regarded as a, as a serious option rather than just the latest bloke who's got a few runs in county cricket. Mm. No, that's, that's really interesting. Um, on on the Livingston debate, I, I can't. I do completely get it because England aren't very good. <laughs> that basically comes down to that. So when we were talking about last week, how kind of boring the, the main squad was or predictable, it's because England haven't won very much. The, none of the batters are getting the many, many runs. Some of the guys in the squad don't have great first-class records. So they, you kind of want to dream a little bit. And possibly Australia is the only place in the world where you could get a white ball guy in. It doesn't move as much. The pitches are true. But, but we, also, we well. also agreed the other day that there are four decent middle order stroke makers, in inverted commas, who, can, who are interchangeable for two spots. And if Livingston's ever going to play red ball cricket at the top level, it's going to be as a number five, number six. Mm. Uh, and that's one of the areas where England, England's current actual squad are relatively well stocked. I would also add that if, if we are looking for one more fantasy player in there, then I know Joe Clark had an in-out season, but Joe Clark's first-class record is better than Livingston's, and he's played a lot more Red Bull cricket of late and finished the season very strongly. Then, of course, there's the, the Vince Enigma as well. You throw those kinds of names in. Harry them, Brooks. Them, them, Harry Brooks, Harry Brooks well, who's Harry actually Bro- had a good... I was surprised he wasn't there. Yeah, honest, I so. mean, they are more legitimate cases to bat five or six in Red Bull cricket for England. Um, I'd also add, on, on your point, Taha, which I think is fair and logical, and if you are going to start him anywhere, then why not start him in, in, in the stiffs on flat tracks in Australia? I get that. Personally, I would say if and he gave an interview to the Guardian and he gave an interview to us to our magazine and he said Test cricket's still on his radar for Livingston. Well, if it, if it is, then say right year dot is the start of April next year and go and play nine or ten games for Lancashire and see where you get to. See where you get to. Don't go and play the IPL. Go go and if you are serious about it, go and start from scratch from next year and then we'll know. Then we'll know if he's got the game to transfer it from one to the other. At the moment, it would be a wild punt out of nowhere, I think. Yeah, I guess it just isn't that wild, though, if it's just a line squad. That's, that's, that's my thinking. I'm not saying put him in that main squad. It's Bang it through the gabber. If it doesn't matter that much, then why are we talking about it? <laughs> what, one, one other thing that I think is interesting, uh, yeah, you're, you're all right to, to mention that there aren't really any stroke makers in that in that squad. And Mo Bobat, the ECB performance director, when explaining the squad, said one of the things he has to do when picking a Lions squad is look at where the gaps might be in the England team in the short term. And you're right, there aren't any in four, five, which six. Which is fair enough, any. which can be the only um, logic for why I say Sam Cook isn't in that Lions squad. Because they've got a lot of other medium, mm. fast, fast mediums. And all the pace bowlers in that Lions squad are slightly quicker or very tall. And not as good. Yeah. <laughs> um... <laughs> Moving on, the the county championship. The ECB has confirmed that from next season, the county championship will return to two divisions uh, following a vote by the 18 counties. Uh, This decision follows discussions between the ECB and the counties. Um, There'll be 10 teams in Division 1, eight teams in Division 2, two up, two down. Um, I think this is really harsh or not. We finished third in 2021, but it will be in Div Div 2 because of where they finished three years prior. Uh, Joe, any thoughts? Yeah, I'm a little bit torn on this because 
the promo- Gloucester and Northampton's promotion was a great story and they'd obviously worked so hard for it against the odds, got there. It would have been great to see them Div 1, but that's heart overhead. I, th- I think this is nonsense, really. I think the cricket is just too long ago. I don't think it can be based on that. And I think this was a reason to have another year of the conference system so everyone was aware leading into the season exactly what you needed to do to get into Div 1. This is part of the problem, isn't it? They, they would be having to make up the rules after the tournament has happened. At least this, they, this way they can just kind of rewind. But I think squads have changed too much. It, 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 yeah, it, it doesn't make sense to me. And I, my concern is that we end up having quite an uneven Division 1 next year as a result because it's it's based on cricket that was... what three years ago by the time you uh, you actually get down to it. I guess Kent were the big winners here. They they they, they yeah. were they were in division three and now they'll be in division one because they finished fourth in twenty nineteen. And I'm fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, again that's that's not that's not right. Yeah. That's not right no, for I agree. me. I and agree. uh yeah it's not a reflection of how good they are as a Red Bull team at this point. Mm, absolutely. Um Tar, what do you reckon? I mean I was just wondering as if there's been any explanation as to why they couldn't just use last season's standings. But basically, because the argument they, they used was in 2019, the teams knew that performance in this competition will influence the next season's league, to, uh, which division you are the, the year after, where they didn't know this year is basically the argument. But that, a then, bit of common sense would have been required, though, for a lot of clubs because they had to know that the wind was, was, was taking the game back towards this mm. and that there was going to be a very decent chance that it was going to be based on what's happened this year as on balance it should have been um it, there's also that kind of tacit element of well they weren't really trying and the whole thing was yeah, a bit yeah. of a farce and, and it's an admission and we've just right overwritten the integrity of this whole summer it's an admission that the the final stages of the summer was just were a meaningless, waste of time yeah. which we've been talking about and now it's sort of almost laid out there for us yeah but but a little bit of foresight from a coach or a skipper <laughs> or even the ecb themselves <laughs> uh <laughs> All it would have required was a word or two to say, look, you know, this might be, this should become relevant and it might become relevant over and above the simple fact of playing the game, yeah. which of course should be enough anyway. There must have been, there must have been one, at least one county captain or coach who, who was saying that. Yeah, you, you, you would, you would um, absolutely think so. Let's give I, it a try today, guys. I'm glad, I'm glad we've gone back to two divisions. Um, uh, I wouldn't have delayed it another year, as you say. I just think you'd have been kicking the can down the road a little bit and... I think next year would have suffered a bit as well from that lack of jeopardy. That said, yeah, I, I think uh, I think it's faintly faintly ridiculous that we are leaning on results that will be literally three years old by the time <laughs> by the time we get round to next year. But the best thing about this news is that it means we don't have to talk about the county structure for at least a month or so. Yeah, that's um, true. They'll probably rejig the. Uh, Royal London One Day Cup soon, and we'll have that to talk about. That should be a week. special episode, though, right? Yeah. In, its, in its own right. <laughs> Talking to the icons of the Royal London One Day Cup era. Um, so it's been a while since we talked about Azim Rafiq on the show. Uh, we've had a few questions in about him recently. Uh, newer listeners might not know this, but you were the one who broke the story 14 months ago. You talked to him again recently. Um, how is he? What are the, what are the latest updates? Um, well, I think the, the main update is that he's seen a redacted version of the report. Um, obviously, Yorkshire released that summary of the report. Uh, you know, the... The morning of that test cancellation uh, in September, uh, Azim's seen the redacted version. Um, what can I say? I mean, the, the main... I, I should say that last week I remember seeing this this Twitter post, obviously, by Yorkshire um, as part of National Hate Crime Awareness Week. And there was a 
part of this post on, on Twitter, there was a picture of, you know, a flag hanging outside Headingley that said, challenge it, report it, stop it. I mean, it was, you know, I don't think the irony was lost on a lot of people. It's, um, it was, it was, it was mocked by a lot of people. And, uh, it kind of reminded me of something, um, Yorkshire did last year, um, before, um, before Rafiq had made any allegations, before any allegations were public, uh, where on their shirt they said they were going to wear a badge that says Yorkshire Cricket Sports Diversity. I mean, these kind of messages, this sort of, these PR drives, um, they don't really mean anything uh, when you're actually so resistant to, to actually confronting the problem when it's actually time to. I mean, um, it's now been more than a month since the club dropped that summary of the report um, and it admits that Zim Rafiq had been a victim of racial harassment and bullying while a player at the county. Um, it showed that racist language was used by former players, by a former coach. August 2018, it was shown that, you know, Zim Rafiq raised concerns of racism and the, the club didn't investigate them, didn't investigate it. Um, and yet all these weeks later, weeks later, we, we still don't really know what's going to happen next. We don't know if these people in the report, um, are being held accountable. Um, you know, I asked the ECB yesterday um, if they've yet to receive the report. Um, I haven't been, I, I'm still waiting for, for an answer. I mean, right now it kind of seems like the only person who seems to be suffering from all of this is the man who it's been shown, it's been proven, um, was the victim. Um, and look, he's been vocal and he's, you know, he's said it publicly now that how much faith, he, faith he's lost in the powers that should be supporting him. Um, can anyone blame him? Um, kind of what this whole situation over the last 14 months i don't you know last year what it kind of continues to show is that you know all of us in cricket all of us in english cricket um we kind of want to talk about a, we we talk a good game we've been talking a good game for the last year about how we want to confront racism in cricket but if it gets a bit too uncomfortable people you know when it when it's actually time to to confront it people don't really they don't want to talk about it it's you know a month ago it, you know, you say it out loud. A month ago, Yorkshire Cricket, County Cricket Club, admitted that a player had been racially abused at the club. And all we've kind of got since then is kind of silence. And it's kind of like, oh, that happened. No one really knows what's going to happen next. And that's kind of frightening, really. And, and Rafiq released a statement in response to Yorkshire's statement summarising the report in which that he, he brings it up. What are, the, what are the consequences for the people who have been found to use his language? Um, and he also said, I want to see the whole thing so I can basically make sure that everything's factually correct. Yeah. And presumably when the ECB do get the report, if they do get it, it will still be the heavily redacted version. So we're still going to be stuck not, in this not sure. um, in this uh, limbo. And I, think hard- that, I think that will be the case though. I, I don't think the, I think the ECB have been pushing for the full report. And as of, as of now, I mean, you've tried to get confirmation of this, but my understanding of it is that as of now, they still haven't received that report. And it's very much up for question what kind of version of the report they will finally get if they get one. Uh, and uh, if they, 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 I know they are increasingly apoplectic, really, um, in the ECB's offices regarding this. And, and look, you know, the biggest county and the governing body, you can see this getting, getting quite, quite heavy duty, I think, maybe even ending up in the, in the courts, potentially. Yeah, because there there's a sense that we need to hear more from the ECB on such a serious matter, but they, are, they have been hampered by, by Yorkshire. And yeah. there's not much more they can say at this point. Yeah, that is The fair. interesting thing will be when they do get the report, redacted or not, that will at least be the next stage. And then it's over to the ECB, really, to decide what action needs to be taken. And, 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 in, and in the midst of it, I mean, how, how, is, he, 
how we, what was your impression of how he how he was coping? Well, the, the the main thing is that he's he's just a lot lost a lot of faith in you know what the system is right and what the system should be and it should be there to protect players and it says it's there to protect players but is it really yeah the, the pca as well you know which is in many ways an admirable organization they are they are in a bind as well and i know a few people there who who are on, on the front line of it and, and so on and the problem that they're conf- they're facing is that they're rather that they're, they're rather neutered if you like, because due to their uh, their their mandate of looking after all the players, now what that means is that they can try and uh, extend their duty of care to Azim Rafiq, and I know that they've been talking to him regularly, but that also means that they they the same principles have to then be applied to those people who have been implicated in the report itself, because they're also ex-players. And they'll they're, they're all be members of the same organization, the union in effect. Uh, and so you can absolutely understand where Azim Rafiq's frustrations are coming from with, with these, these, these institutions that run so much of English cricket because he must be feeling incredibly isolated out there. Um, uh, and, and, you know, it's devastating. It's, it's devastating on, on the boy and it's, it, it's a devastating indictment on the game, as we know. Um, yeah, uh, you just hope that he can hold himself together uh, until he gets some kind of clarity and resolution. And I think it's important that we sit around this table and it's important that other outlets do the same and that they continue talking about this because there'll be lots of people out there that will be very comfortable if this story just dr- you know drifts away uh, with us on the vine and we can't have that. We cannot have that. Mm, absolutely. We'll keep talking about it on this show, that's for sure. Um very big, big gear change. Uh, the IPL final happened this week. Um, we mentioned it earlier, but MS Stoney CSK took the title, beating KKR in the final. Fafta Plessy hit 86. Moeen smashed a quick fire, 37. Um, I just wanted to mention the second qualifier game, which feels like a long time ago. One of the most amazing finishes to any game of cricket I've ever seen. Um, chasing 136 KKR were 123 mm. for one with 4.1 overs to go. 23 balls later, there were suddenly 130 for seven um, with two balls to go before Rahul Tripathi hit the fifth ball of the final over for six. Yeah, um, it was, uh, was Ravi Ravi, Ravi yeah, yeah. to drag well, one down. and bowled, bowled him a dirty long yeah. hop with a ball to go. Um, interesting though, that we got through like the best part of 55 minutes on this show before you mentioned the final of the biggest domestic tournament in the world by miles which you would think should be nearer the top of the show but it's kind of indicative of the the of circus of element <laughs> maybe of us maybe simply of I us mean, but, but, but the, the the instant forgettability of of so much of 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 you know the, the, the merry-go-round. But, but I forgot. I forgot. Two days later, the, the same players are playing warm-up games. <laughs> but that's it. But it's also indicative of the fact that the IPL finishes the day before a world tournament starts. I mean that, and the IPL starts in two months, right? It's early next year. Yeah. When uh, you um, when you said we're going to talk about the IPL final, I was like, that was months ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was also yeah. a rubbish final. Uh, yes, it well, was. Yeah. Although, although I did, I did enjoy uh, Faf's knock. Yeah, I've always had a soft spot for him. I think he's a really good bloke. I've interviewed him a couple of times. He's always been lovely and kind of interesting character in the story of, of 
cricket, you kind of forget that he's still ticking along, but still doing the business. He got the orange cap. Or he might have even finished a run short. He, fin- he finished a run short of getting the orange cap. But anyway, it was a brilliant, brilliant knock. Um, and quite watchable as well. And he's not always the most watchable of players. I, I really enjoyed that that, that final, mm. actually, I have to say. I mean, genuinely on how much we talk about the IPL, listeners, if you think we should talk about it more next year. Tell us. Genuinely tell us. Is there, and I, I'm aware I'm putting my head above the parapet slightly here, CSK aren't a particularly lovable side, right? There's not uh, there's not a great story. I mean, I was pleased for Moen, obviously, but they're, they're think, really old. Yeah, I think you'll find quite a lot of people like Dhoni in India, at least. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, that is true. Um, that is true. And I guess it was interesting that... But it's also not that interesting. I suppose it is interesting, a story that he's pulled it off. Yeah. And, I, maybe I think, I just, um, and they were really I, bad I think, in the year before. From I, put so much into the they first, were, I put in so much into the first leg of the IPL. <laughs> I wasn't really ready to give it give it more when the second leg came I, around. I think if, if we transposed our sort of irritating, hipsterish metropolitan elite credentials and really threw ourselves at Indian cricket, then I think CSK would probably be my least favourite team because they had the big scandal, didn't they? You know, and there's that sense of entitlement and, you know, they were banned for two years and were resurrected, you know, on a technicality and all of that. And, and now they're winning it all again. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure they'd be my first team. Um, but yeah, I'll probably... Probably lost a few fans on that one. You might want to scrap that <laughs> oh, one. Let's Put move on. Let's keep that in. Keep that in. Yeah, sure. By sure. the way, let, let's move on. Um, <laughs> elsewhere today, this morning, um, Australia quick James Pattinson announced his retirement from international cricket at the age of 31. He played 21 tests, taking 81 wickets at 26. Uh, he's only played four tests in pretty much the last five years um which and this was actually pretty and this big news injury, for the Ashes sorry this was an injury thing again because he, he, he's not playing in their upcoming Shield game is it and just yeah and, 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 and he basically said it was he thought it was too much for him to get to a place where he could play test cricket so he wanted to make the decision of basically so I can spend more time with my family I can maybe play a bit of cricket in England yeah I mean a sun bowler to have have that kind of small record mm. isn't it really mm. I mean I think he made a, his, a fair wind for, for a bowler of that kind of quality and he could have been anything. I think he made his debut alongside Mitchell Stark or something about 10 years ago now. Yeah, I think what, 21 tests yeah. or something. It's quite sad for a bowler who's is that good. I'd recommend people find the clip of him bowling in grade cricket. Oh, I, yes. I was thinking that this it's morning. Astonishing. It's <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. Well, it's the one where he gives the kid a send-off. Yeah, I, mean, I don't yeah. think he's a kid, but it's just it's beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful thing to watch. Yeah, he's bowling far too yeah, fast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> too fast, cricket. yeah. And I think Siraj Randeev, who used to play for Sri Lanka, at slip. <laughs> Good side. What a link. Um, Phil, what's your moment of the week? Well, a bleak one. Uh, Harvey Hussain, the very good Derbyshire keeper batsman, has retired from the game, age 25, uh, due to a series of concussion head injuries. And um, after... Uh, a kind of extended, sustained series of analyses with the 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 um, the staff at Derbyshire and a neurologist as well. They have come to that conclusion that it would be just simply too dangerous for him to continue playing at the uh, professional level, and so he has had to make the incredibly difficult decision. And he's made the decision himself. He's not been pushed out. This is a this is a percentage based decision, if you like, and the clubs. Chief exec said, in all likelihood, his decision has prevented another injury surfacing and obviously potentially serious consequences for 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 Harvey himself. Um, this story, 
I mean, you know, our sympathies go out to the lad. You know, it, it must be horrific. He played at 18 for Derbyshire. Took, I think, nine or ten catches or something in his first game. He was a homegrown player, highly regarded. He'd had a good career. And then just as you're getting to the, the meat of it, you've got to go. It's, it's brutal. Brutal for the lad. But the, the broader point is that concussion in cricket, just as many sports are having reckonings with themselves, it's only going to get a bigger story, this. And, a, and I think down the line, I think it's inevitable that there will be changes to the game. I really do. I think some, at some point down the line, I think as much as it's as it sounds awkward coming out of my mouth, I think that bouncers will probably have to be banned in the end. I think before before the the, the you know the final run of this game, I think that health and safety issues are so pronounced now in all sports and I think cricket is reckoning with itself. And I do genuinely think that eventually that decision will have to be taken. It, it, it becomes a financial thing as well. Um, uh, the, the NFL settled seven, no, eight years ago in 2013, they settled a 765 million pound, million dollar uh, series of, of lawsuits with various American football players uh, who had shown to have neurological damage post-retirement. $765 million. Uh, that was a watershed moment for other sports as well. And cricket has had its own tragedies, as we know, of course. And the Philip Hughes tragedy followed not far on from that. I think 2015 it was, maybe, or 2016. And, uh, and you're now seeing the game slowly confront the issue. Obviously, concussion substitutes are now an established part of the game. Um, but even with that watershed moment with, with Marnus coming in halfway through that Lord's Test match, you still had the, the shocker of Steve Smith having been felled by, by Joffre Archer and then, have, then resuming a few, an hour or so later. I mean, well-meaning by the, by, by the medical staff, but a shocking decision and indicative again of a game that's, that's not really up to date with this, with this ongoing and increasingly significant issue. Uh, you have... Pukowski, the Australian opening bat, who's I think had nine separate concussions. And just this week and had further concussion symptoms. So as a precaution, yeah. he was taken out. Yeah. Um, Nathan Lyon had minor concussion this week as well. Yeah, the, the, I mean, this, so this subject is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Last year, we talk, I think we talked about this on the pod, Malcolm Knox, an Australian writer, wrote uh, basically what you, you're saying now, that he thinks the bouncers should be out, outlawed. You, you're right. saying that... You, you just said that you think that it will be. Do you think it should be now? I can't say that yet. Um, I don't have the strength of conviction to say that. And the consequences of that for the game, and it will apply obviously more to the Red Bull game, uh, are quite big, existential possibly. They are, but then... And it, and it sounds like it would be a different sport entirely, but... As you say, other sports have, have faced this reckoning and, and have changed. American football and rugby, which are games that I vaguely follow but not closely, as I understand it, have, have, have changed. I mean, quite fundamentally in some aspects in, in, in what you're allowed to do and how you can do it. Um, cricket shouldn't think it's above that that it somehow has kind of special status that the bounces are so significant that the game continues. That, and I agree with Phil. I can't get to the point where I say bouncers should be banned because I'm not. I'm not sure if there is even the medical evidence to suggest that is is worthwhile. That, that percentage wise, that and there also there are 
you can ban a you can ban a bounce. There are still other ways of of getting concussed on a cricket field. I true, think I, I watch. True. I just feel, fear more and more for umpires the more I watch them. Um, I think Bruce Oxford's Oxford Oxenford's thing, the protection thing, which a few people had a bit of a laugh about at the time. I think that is really sensible. Totally, these umpires don't have the the reaction speeds of of the cricketers they're officiating. I, I think it's a matter of time before well, someone gets bowlers really in their follow through in that as well. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, this is it's true. I mean, there was obviously that Luke Fletcher horrifying moment when he was clanged from a straight drive. I think it was Sam Hayne who hit it. And yeah, Nathan Lyon, you mentioned it wasn't batting; it was in the field where he was. It was a mild concussion, I believe, but but he was he was hit on the head. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there remains, of course, the issue of machismo and how you overcome that in the game and. Obviously, you, you no more macho game than say rugby, and that's had to try and wrestle with the vocabulary around the game, and evolve its attitudes around the game as well. And cricket will have to will have to try and cross that Rubicon as well. Yeah, um, I remember I remember Beefy saying during that Lord's Test match um, with the concussion substitute, and he says, "Well, we may as well use a tennis ball, you know." And it's it's a, doesn't it's sound a, like him. It's a beef line and. <laughs> And yet there will be many, many people who love the game who will be saying the same kind of thing. And so and so this is this is the on, this is the challenge that the game is gonna have to I think in the end confront. How do you maintain the spirit of it and keep people with it while also evolving with the times? Yeah, I so I genuinely think that if you don't you could do something that doesn't completely outlaw the bouncer but you could significantly reduce it and basically treat a bouncer like a beamer where if you bowl something that's genuinely at a batsman's head you get an official warning so you can still bowl reasonably short stuff but you can't bowl something direct at someone's head and that's up to the umpire i don't think that'd be a significant change to the game it would make it slightly safer for the batter um but yeah as as, as a starting point rather than just out outright banning it um but yeah, that that is, mm. that is all interesting. Um, all kinds of levels too, as well. Sorry, I mean pitches as well. You, I can understand where you're coming from there, but if, if you look, say, at the footage, the '76 footage of Brian Close and Michael Holding, they weren't trying to knock his head off. It, they landed just short of a length, and it was just flying past his face because the pitch was corrugated and up and down. Mm. Joe and me have been writing about um, great half centuries of the century for our 50th issue of WCM, and a lot of them are these kind of rear guard games on filthy corrugated pitches where you you know that you're wearing one on the elbow one on the shoulder one on the grill and bowlers are not going after these batsmen but the pitches are so up and down that it's kind of an occupational hazard but then of course there's the other element that we're writing these things up and kind of celebrating the 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 heroism the glory of it and sport in its most primal form is of course some of the most memorable and, and sustaining and significant you ask people to pick out their favorite cricket photograph how many of them are going to be a, a batsman leaping in the air with his head thrust backwards trying to get out of the way of a, of a bouncer i mean that that is what for a lot of people yeah test cricket is about and it? yeah there's another question there's another question i don't know if you're planning to get to it if you are sorry about this but they said name me some other great youtube clips from the past are you going to get to this all right, well, before you do, a lot of us would instinctively tell you tell that person about those occasions when a batsman and a bowler have been going hammer and tong at one another. And it's it's cricket as played in the raw and on the edge. Mm. Um, well, let's get to that question. Um, 
I know he's asked uh, a question before, but but Shervo has sent in another cracker. They're just if, too good. If you've forgot, yeah, if you've forgotten about David Shervington, aka Shervo, he wrote to us. The a Shervinator. Few, uh, he wrote to us a few weeks ago about his favourite moment of the summer, uh, in which he explained that he's relatively new to cricket in that he only started properly following it at the end of the 2018 summer. So he's got in touch again and he's asked, I've been enjoying Felix White's book and as well as being a beautiful walk down musical memory lane and a powerful memoir of personal grief, it's been a useful primer and key moments in relatively recent cricket history that I missed because I was too busy stupidly not liking cricket for most of my life. Reading his vivid description of Donald bowling to Atherton in 1998, I immediately went to YouTube and spent a happy few minutes experiencing it for myself for the first time. So my question is, what other iconic cricketing moments does the panel think I should be looking up on YouTube and reliving during the winter months? Um, that's amazing, though, that anything be 2018, that's new to him. I'm quite um, jealous. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think first... You know what's when you hear about a great box set? And yeah, you can get yeah. to go and watch it and everyone else enjoyed it for the first 2005 time. Ashes box set, talking of box sets. Well, that, that'll sort you out for three that's, hours. Uh, that's on YouTube as well. Yes, that's true. Yeah. It is on YouTube. Um, um, for myself, my favourite thing tournament in cricket, really, is the World Cup, 50-over World Cup. So, you know... Just well, all of them. Okay. Just, well, you should just go and watch every, all of them. Every all single of them from the first watch all game. the World Cup shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Right from 79 to 90. Might have more. I don't know if he's got that much time. I, yeah. All right, has. narrow it down. So the, the ni- <laughs> Which the 90- World Cup? The 92 World Cup um, is obviously the, you know, the, the watershed moment. So, yeah, Shervo, go and, go and watch the 92 World Cup. The, I think there is a YouTube um, video, in effect, the 100 greatest moments of the 92 World Cup. And I had that actual VHS when I was a kid. And that is a beauty from just Azruddin just playing a cover drive against South Africa to... You know, Phil Defraitis cleaning up Peter Kirsten in the semi-final, whatever it might be. Just individual moments from that great World Cup. Uh, similar, similar to Donald, uh, to Atherton, that's from the World Cup. Wahab Riaz to, to Shane Watson, 2015. Yeah, good just wrote about for the magazine, yes, actually. Yeah. Um, so you should read that too. You should World read that Cup. as well. World yeah. Cup, Joe. Uh, yeah. yeah. um, uh, 99 World Cup was the, the Australia-South Africa game where Warren got a three for... Uh, the final, the finish to the semi-final. I think got got to watch that. Yeah, don't bother um, watching England in that no, tournament. Yeah. Uh, might might uh, not be much out there. Yeah. One tr- triggered for me because uh, he partially because he mentioned Atherton and all, it just sums up that cricket is largely uh, heartbreaking. Was uh, Atherton's run out at Lords '93? I think that's a good lesson in how horrible this game can be. That was only my second day of live Test cricket after '99 coming back for the run that would complete what would end up being his, his only 100 at Lords and, and slips and falls and just just watch it for yourself. And then another 99, which um, I've just been writing about for the feature that Phil mentioned, uh, Alex Tudor, 99 not out, uh, Edge Baston, 1999, um, one of those knocks that just shouldn't really happen, uh, but he's thrown out there just to block out a few deliveries at the end of the previous day and that goes on and wins a test match for England at a time when they didn't win too many so that there's some good highlights of that as well so I'd yeah. recommend that one I mean, it's a very broad question isn't it We basically, he's basically asking what what was good in cricket <laughs> before 2018 before September 2018 all, I mean, all bad in cricket all, all bad yeah that's to, true I mean. that's true um I've talked about Scotland already but I'd highly recommend the highlights of Scotland beating England uh, just for the pitch invasion the end really um at a very small ground in Scotland would recommend that uh, Phil any any more I spent a whole afternoon in lockdown watching Australia v West Indies home test matches from the late 70s, early 80s. 
and CA, Cricket Australia, they have all this footage and they plonk it all on YouTube. Mm. So it's really good. And Viv makes 100 in one game. There's a load of footage of that. Um, Dennis Lilly cleans them up, takes 10 for in one game, wins one of those games. But there's loads of it. And it's also, it's just the daily highlights. So it's the half hour in the evening Channel 9 highlights. So a lot of it's rubbish. A lot of it's just some like, you know, you know, Bruce Laird gets 40 odd in 180 balls. Did you watch the lot? Or were you, were you I, I spent a whole afternoon, you know, it was, <laughs> it was, it was during the Pando, wasn't it? So lockdown stuff. Um, so I'd, I'd recommend that for sure. Um, also Pathé News, type in any kind of test match from the you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, type in England, West Indies, 1963 Lords, for example, the great test match. And then Pathé News has got those daily um, roundups. And I think they're also on the Lord's website as well, so it's not all on YouTube. But if you want to kind of learn about some of the grainy old black and white stuff, then, yeah, type in any of those games and generally Pathé News have got that covered as well. I think there's a lot on the ICC website. Yes. You want. I yeah. think they released a lot of things over 2020. So Yeah. Anything I- with Mark War. Any, anything at all even it just him sort of walk into the shops anything at all with him <laughs> um, in all seriousness just, there's a bloke called Robolinda2 on YouTube find his YouTube channel and he's this archivist who's got footage that I don't think anyone else really owns the so, most important man in cricket it, it, you know, we had him on the podcast during the lockdown he's got to um, be top 10 that's probably the most excited I've ever been for an interview bizarrely because I had no idea what he's going to be like um, so I direct you uh, over there Um we have a, another question uh, from George. He has said, I'd love to know the pod's thoughts on, on the possibility of having different white ball and red ball head coaches from a national side. The thought first came to my mind when I saw a video of Ricky Ponting speaking excellently in the Delhi Capitals changing room after their qualified defeat in the IPL. It was commented upon how it is a shame that coaches like Ponting, love him or loathe him, are unlikely to become national coaches because of the gruelling schedule and time away from family. Clearly, when it comes to different captains with different formats, this is not an issue and is pretty standard. So I do not see why it cannot be replicated with coaches. In my mind, Trevor Bayliss was a white ball coach and Chris Silverwood is a red ball coach. So why not get them to focus on what they're good at? Um... Don't have to spend ages on this, but what do you think? Uh, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think it will go more that way as well. Um, There are a host of reasons for it, but uh, the different formats becoming more and more different, I think, is is up there with the best of them. England have been burnt in the past with this. They obviously had the the Giles uh, Flower. It was Giles Flower, wasn't it? Giles doing the one-day stuff. Flower in the test team didn't really work particularly well and there will always be that friction between the formats but we kind of have that anyway um, I'm not sure it's going to be that much worse if you have different captains might even be better in some ways but it's interesting though that the central contracts have actually tried to blur the lines even more yeah. they're kind of like pink contracts now um, and it, they are trying to keep the thing as as uh, homogenous as they can now Um now, yeah, you know, I tend to agree with you on balance, but I can, I can imagine that the conversations going on in the England setup, at least, are ones of different agendas, different competing power struggles, and you know, Morgan understandably wanting to have his white ball stuff exactly as he wants it, and Joe Root straddling all the different worlds, but still being, of course, the, the Red Bull captain, and then you have now Silverwood, who is overlord of all of it. And Giles is overlord of him. And if they were to silo the thing more, which I think would result in a more effective group of 
teams, but there would also be even more challenging issues from a sort of diplomacy perspective and dressing room cohesion and so on. There would be even more of an issue because naturally, if you're the Red Bull coach, you'd be saying, what the hell are you doing? Why aren't my boys playing? Why aren't I getting with the same team out every single week? This is, it's a very ECB way of doing it. And that's what happened with Flower and Giles and Flower on the conversation every single time and it, and it didn't work. Yeah. But, so you, you, it's and Giles acknowledged thing. that, didn't he, at the time? He said, tried it, didn't happen. And also, we didn't really like white ball cricket in this country at that point. So it was, there wasn't really an argument to be had. Now it's much more complex. Yeah. Um, it could be, I still think overall it's a good thing. It could be dictated by the, the calendar. I mean, uh, look at India... Uh, this summer where they had that whole separate squad in Sri Lanka and then the whole separate thing in in England and then you kind of you you have to have someone else you know running that ship um and what when England did it it was a, a stage like like Joe's saying where you know there wasn't that much of a difference between the white ball side and the red ball side i mean if we get to the stage where you know this is this is the prediction that people are making where you have completely different teams then i think that makes sense yeah i think the the point from George that I, I really like is that if you have one coach across all formats, you're restricting who you can get as your coach because so few coaches nowadays, especially ones who, who do any kind of T20 stuff, the idea of working so much across a year when you could have the franchise gigs pick when you work doesn't sound that appealing to them. Um, so you might just restrict the pool of people available to you, which I think might eventually mean they split them up. Um, Meanwhile, Adil Rashid's bowling really I well. Know, I know, I completely lost my train of thought there. Just looking at both of you kind of drifting, your eyes drifting above my head. Um, just finally, a shout out for the uh, a change to the wisdom.com shop. Um, from, from this week, there is free UK shipping, excluding Northern Ireland and the Scottish Highland and Islands, on all, all, on all orders uh, over 50 quid from the wisdom shop. Um, this so, you, means, so you're, if you're in the Shetlands, you're buggered. You can't get anything. Yeah, Fred oh, is not free shipping. Um, to get to the mainland. <laughs> yeah, afraid so. Um, but that, that means that you can. there's free shipping on our limited edition Andrew Redding collection featuring some of England's most loved grounds, um, which if you haven't seen it already, I'd highly, highly recommend. Um, yes, um, I want to jump in because we got another lovely email, which I knew you wouldn't read out because you, <laughs> you, you don't like to make it all oh, about you. Oh, you've got to do it. Oh, this is um, embarrassing. <laughs> so this is from Phil Robson or Mr. Robson to you, Yaz. Uh, hello, Yaz and the team. Loving the podcast. Long time listener, first time emailer. I don't have any moving stories or elegant deep questions, but I'm feeling very proud of Yazine. I was his tutor at St. Paul's School between 2009 and 2012 and vividly remember our chats about the best game in the world and upcoming stars, including one whom I forget the name of but was playing for Surrey Academy at the time. The boy done good, as they say. I admit I started listening to the pod after learning the boy prodigy was hosting, but keep coming back because it's compelling, thoughtful, elegant journalist speaking sense. Here, here. Now that I live in America, wisdom is about 90% of what I consume in terms of cricket. The other 10% is Felix White and his mob. Keep up the great work, Phil Robson. Oh, Isn't that what, nice? What a lovely message. Um, yeah, I remember basically spending every morning through for three years at school just talking about cricket with with Phil, and it was great. Who's your favourite um, Phil, Yaz? Uh, well, it's got to be Robson. Got to be Robson. Be and I think, and I think um, the Surrey Academy player that I would have been obsessed uh, with in 2012 would probably be Zafran Sorry, I think. Who later appeared on the podcast? This exactly, is just, it's yeah, full circle. Yeah. <laughs> full circle. It's, um, it's all happening. Um, anyway, that's all we have time for. It's another very, very long podcast. Cheers, Tar. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, Phil. Uh, this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast, and we'll be back next week.
Social Podcast Network.